I'm Amrit Swali, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. It's just me today as Mariana is settling back in after a very exciting holiday and Ben is enjoying the sun and the sea, somewhere where there is sun and sea, so not the UK. (laughs) This episode is a little different than usual in that it's a tad introspective, but it covers a lot of things that are very important to Chatham House staff and indeed a lot of people. Firstly, you'll hear an acceptance speech from the recipient of our Centenary Diversity Champion Award, Melina Abdullah. Melina was here in person, accepting the award on behalf of the Black Lives Matter movement, a movement that has done incredible amounts of work for the fight for racial equality. Melina is co-founder of the Los Angeles chapter of BLM and professor of Pan-African Studies at California State University in LA. I won't give too much away, but Melina's speech is a reminder of the importance of self-awareness in our actions and our duties as human beings in this global and important fight. Melina also spoke to Ben for Chatham House's magazine, The World Today. We'll be sure to link the interview in the show notes. Then you'll hear a conversation between myself and my fellow Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Working Group chairs, Leah, Joseph, Binny, Yusuf and Nina. Chatham House's EDI Working Group was set up about a year ago as a way for Chatham House staff to try and understand our responsibility, both as individuals and as people working for an institute like Chatham House in confronting systemic, cultural and social inequalities. You'll hear about our thoughts on allyship, how we think the conversation on race and international affairs is developing, and what institutes like ours, set up for certain reasons and for certain people, can do to address issues of inequality in ways that matter. A lot of the EDI Working Group's work is internally focused, so you may not know a lot about it, but it's quite fundamental to the reputation we want to have and the vision we hold. So I hope it gives you an insight into how we, as an organisation, are responding to big and important global movements. But first, let's take a listen to Melina Abdullah's amazing speech. So... I always begin by taking a deep breath in, so I'm gonna ask you to join me in taking a deep breath in and to breathe out. And that was for me, not for you. (laughs) Um, I'm deeply honored to have um, been invited here. I'm deeply honored to be allowed to speak on behalf of this beautiful movement that is developed. Um, And I'm deeply honored, we're all deeply honored to be receiving this award. We know that a hundred years ago, black folks who are unabashed in our commitment to black radical movement would not be receiving the Chatham House Award. But here we are and we're receiving the Chatham House Award. And that says something about where we're moving this world. Um, And I'd like to just open my remarks in the names of many of those who are moving us forward. I'd like to open my remarks in the name of Riddell Jones, in the name of Waukesha Wilson, 
in the name of Mike Brown Jr. In the name of Andrew Joseph III, whose family is here with us. I'd like to open in the name of Mzi Muhammad, who was killed here, of Joy Gardner. I'd like us to remember that their spirits, the thousands of black people who are murdered by states all over the world, provide spirit which charges this movement. Black Lives Matter is absolutely a black radical movement that seeks to inherit the spirit of those abolitionist movements like the ones led by Mama Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and Ida B. Wells who traveled to the United Kingdom before us looking for anti-lynching support. We too travel here looking for support for our current anti-lynching movement. So we come here as a black radical movement that inherits that history, that summons the spirit of Martin Luther King, that summons the spirit of Malcolm X, that summons the spirit of Paul Robeson and Kwame Nkrumah and Kwame Ture and all of those who've walked before us and recognizes that we're not just a movement on the ground, we're also a spiritual movement that is charged by those whose bodies have been stolen by states all around the globe, not just in the United States, but here in the UK. And we're charged by their spirits and we open in their names and we pray that the work that we do gives them honor. We stand in a moment when the world has been cracked wide open. Many of you have lended your bodies, lent your bodies to what has become the largest movement in racial and social justice history. There have been millions of folks all around the globe who have stood up and who've declared Black Lives Matter, who followed and you know, lent your support, lent your voices, to movements that have been led right here by people like Keza Rose of BLM UK. And so we're so grateful that Keza is joining us here. <coughs> you've lent your bodies, you've said Black Lives Matter. You've recognized that the theft of George Floyd's life, that the theft of Breonna Taylor's life, the theft of Ahmaud Aubrey's life is a moment when the world has cracked wide open and it calls us in to do work on their behalf. But sometimes what happens as we say names like George Floyd from cities like London, we forget that George Floyd wasn't alone. That as we say George Floyd, we also must say MZ Muhammad, right? As we say George Floyd, you also must learn the name Waukesha Wilson. You also must learn the name Fred Williams, whose angelversary is coming up this weekend, right? You must learn all of these names and recognize that there is no such thing as a Black Lives Matter moment. There's only an ongoing movement for justice, Black liberation, and Black freedom. And all of us have been called into this work. This has become 
our sacred duty. When we say the world is cracked wide open, now I'll confess that I watch a little TV, not a lot of it, but a little of it. And um, my favorite television show, I don't know if you get it here, is a show called Lovecraft Country, which was on HBO. It's based on a book series. And in that series, um, there's a moment of racial reckoning that's inspired by the theft of Emmett Till's life. Some of you will remember Emmett Till was a 14-year-old boy whose life was stolen by white supremacy in 1955. And his body was found at the bottom of a river and his mother, Mamie Till, decided that she would make Emmett's life mean something by exposing to the world the horror that had happened to her son. I think of Deanna Joseph as our Mamie Till, as one of our mother leader warriors who I'm proud to call my kin, who said that her son, Andrew Joseph III, will be like Emmett Till, will inspire all of us to work for justice so that my son, your little cousin, Amen Abdullah, your little cousin, Tandibwe Abdullah, your little cousin, Amara Abdullah, and your daughter, Deja, will not be an Emmett Till. And so I'm grateful to you. That show, Lovecraft Country, was about a mother's love and a community who surrounded her and said, we're going to use this moment when the world has been cracked open and being held open by the spirit of Emmett Till to summon the African principle of Sankofa, to go back and get it, to go back and get what we are sacredly charged to do, to rush through the portal and determine what it is we must do in order to get to black freedom. I'll submit to you right now that we know that we're in a moment when that portal is beginning to close. The question we have to ask ourselves is did we go back and get it? As the portal is closing, how will we move forward? The Sankofa bird is, um, the image of the Sankofa bird has a bird with its neck craned all the way back, retrieving something, but its feet are firmly planted in a forward direction. What is our forward direction? What does black freedom look like? What does it look like to build a world where our children don't have to constantly fight, have to constantly struggle? I think about what happened as we talk about environmental justice and that our teenagers have to say, well, let's complicate the conversation a bit. What does colonialism mean? How must we think about racial justice even in the context of environmental justice? How do we build a world where our teenagers can just imagine and be free and not be burdened by race constantly? And I'll say that is the work of Black Lives Matter. We are unabashedly Black radical abolitionists who understand that the world that we live in isn't the world that has to be. The world that we live in doesn't have to be filled with police who see targets on our backs. The world that we live in doesn't have to be filled with jails and prisons that steal Black life. 
The world that we live in can be filled with real education that allows our children to really engage their minds. It can be filled with black art where we have things like BLM Fest and say, how do we imagine? How do we build? How do we create? How do we document? How do we offer these imaginings to inspire new movements? That's the work of abolition and that is the work of Black Lives Matter, but I'll also submit because not everyone in this room is black. But this is also your work. This is also your work. We have a sacred duty, but so do you. That black freedom is your charge as well. It is your duty to engage in anti-colonial work. It is your duty to engage in the work of anti-racism. It is your duty to tear down brick by brick every institution that embeds and entrenches the racism that steals black life, steals the lives of indigenous people, that um, builds up white supremacist, patriarchal, heteronormative capitalism. It is your duty to also be abolitionists. It is your duty, your sacred duty to heed that call. You know, I was in the audience as Sir David Attenborough received his award yesterday. And I thought about what it meant for him to have offered the last 96 years to building a world that is more free for all of the inhabitants of the planet. What he did, what he's doing, is heeding his sacred duty. That's all of our charge. It's all of our charge, not just to get in the streets for a year or two years or to say the word Black Lives Matter or to post it on your social media, but to actually do the work to make Black Lives Matter. Because when Black people get free, everyone gets free. Ashe. Black Lives Matter. 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 Ashe. Ashe. Thank you. I'm joined in a really cold media studio by my colleagues Leah, Nina and Jay and down the line in hopefully what is a more warmer climate, Binny and Yusuf. So I want to ask you all about what you thought about Melina's speech and the award in general but perhaps we can start with you all just quickly introducing yourselves. Of course, hi everyone, um, my name is Leah, I am the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Chair at Chatham House and I am also a project manager in our director's office. Hey, I'm, I'm Jay. I'm on the same committee as Leah and I am the co-chair for Race and Ethnicity. Hi, everyone. My name is Nina and I'm the co-chair for People with Disabilities here at Chatham House. And I also work in the Global Health Programme. I'm Binny. My pronouns are they, them. I am co-chair of the LGBTIQ strand and I also work in the library. Hello, I'm Yusuf. I am the co-chair for socioeconomic backgrounds and I work to diversify individuals' different socioeconomic backgrounds at Chatham House and I work at the Africa programme. 
Great, thank you all. As we heard, Melina started her speech by saying that a hundred years ago, black people would not have received an award from Chatham House. So I just want to start by asking you all, what did you think of the speech? How did you digest this moment, which I'm sure we'll all agree was a pretty big one for a lot of members of staff? What did you think about it? Personally, um, as a black member of staff at Chatham House, I personally found it really powerful. It was the first time I'd felt so represented and so kind of seen at Chatham House. Um, Her words were very powerful and took a really kind of different tone from the typical kind of power structures and kind of power-based kind of conversations we normally and discourse we normally have at Chatham House. So for me, it was a really nice change of pace and kind of really spoke to a lot of things that we don't normally talk about here at Chatham House. Yeah, and I think just to jump off on your point there in terms of how different it was than the usual sort of um, Chatham House gathering, the fact that this nomination came from staff, I think is a really important thing to mention as well. And I thought, you know, in her speech, and maybe this is just an aesthetic point, but her imagery, her use of imagery was so beautiful. I think for me, which might be a little strange, but her point about the Shinkofi bird kind of drawing back all the way from sort of thousands and thousands of years and sort of drawing it all the way back to um, the present day moment was really powerful. I think she she did a really brilliant job at having this amazing, memorable speech, but also having really accessible moments that I think everyone could really relate to. So one of the moments that I really, really remember is the description of herself and of a lot of the people that she worked closely with in the Black Lives Matter movement as being mothers, leaders and warriors. And I just thought that was such a beautiful image um, and something, of course, to aspire to. I think yeah, on a personal level, similarly, I think to Joseph, I think we have a way of seeing things at the house. And I think there is an, there is an immediate assumption about Chatham House, about the way we work. And let's be very frank, it's, it's, it's steeped in some level of legitimacy. Um, however, I think the moment we saw, you know, Melina on the stage and, and, and the manner in which she was able to articulate a vision for Black Lives Matter that was... You know, that was intersectional, that was internationalist, that was really framed in a language that Chatham House audiences, I don't feel, hear enough. So on a, on, a, on a practical level, it was a really inspiring moment for myself. I'm sure it was an inspiring moment for, for all of our colleagues that came along and to some of the members as well. And my real hope is, I think, you know, events like this aren't isolated, that it's not the only time in, in the next century that we find an example of language like this being used on, the, on a platform so important as Chatham House. So, so yeah, so it was a really, really lovely moment for me. I think I'd probably add to that, like a big theme of Melina's speech was black radicalism. And of course, radicalism manifests itself very differently in different contexts. But for us at Chatham House, and we've all been to many events here, and to see the JGH chanting Black Lives Matter, was it was really quite something um, and really quite radical in its own right as well. But Yusuf, just picking up on the point that you made for an organisation like Chatham House with its rather elitist reputation and its somewhat dodgy history, how far do you guys think we've come in our understanding of race and international affairs? I mean, I know a lot of the programmes in Chatham House have started to tackle this as well, but as an institute as a whole in how we represent ourselves, do you think in the past year especially that we've made a lot of progress? I'd say a couple of things. I think there's two key angles. The first is that if you look at our mission 
I think equality, diversity and inclusion is kind of at the heart of that and it should be key to how we have always conducted the work at Chatham House in terms of policy advice, in terms of creating a specific type of international space. So that is the first thing I would say is that I think it should be inherent in how we do everything and I think that as a group, and maybe this is something we can come to a bit more, that is been how we have approached it we should have always done this so that's the first thing I would say then when you put that into contrast with the hundred you know year centenary and of course you know this is not to undermine the amazing things that have happened here but there is a huge history that we need to examine so I think there's there's two sides of that in the sense that we should have always been doing that and it's inherent to how we work but there is a huge history that we need to examine over the last year I think the last year probably shook a lot of people in the sense that they realised that we have not done enough to talk about everything from racism, anti-racism in policymaking, in terms of, you know, really caring about lives regardless of what they look like. So I think we have come a long way, but we've got a long journey ahead of us to properly talk through all of these issues in terms of how we work at the house and also how we engage with people, you know, in in policy-making spaces, in governments and all across the world. One of my favourite things, and just kind of jumping off your point, is that the point about black radicalism, she said very clearly and very, like, very plainly, that um, Black Lives Matter as an organisation is a radical movement. And to say that so kind of boldly and confidently kind of was really amazing to hear, especially on a platform like Chatham Houses. I think when you kind of hear that spoken so plainly and when she kind of humanised the movement and what we are talking about, it wasn't just about Black Lives Matter, it wasn't just kind of about the whole movement that happened around George Floyd and how it kind of shifted the global kind of position regarding race and anti-racism when she was saying the names of the people that had passed away and she really humanized what what she was saying which doesn't often happen when you talk about organizations and causes like this you kind of take the broader perspective you kind of look at it like okay so this this is going to happen here and this is going to happen here but it was really kind of rooted in kind of the human nature of what it actually black lives matter actually means away from kind of all the politics away from all the kind of issues around brutality melina really humanized um the movement so i think that was really amazing to see and i think that again the articulation of that radicalism and, and of what they actually stand for based on what you might hear others say they stand for was really nice to hear spoken at Jam House. Yeah, and within sort of international affairs as well, I think it was really nice that sort of at the end of really articulating the movement, it ended also on sort of, uh, which was a response to a question in terms of what institutes like Chatham House can do um, to support this cause. And part of that was, for example, research. Um, I mean, obviously financial support was mentioned. I think that's an important one as well. But I think as a policy institute, then in terms of what projects we do, who are we inviting around the table? And more importantly, who is not around the tables that that we uh, convene are really important questions to ask ourselves as an institute. No, following on from Nina's point, I think it's really interesting and as someone who, as part of the centenary celebrations, we, we looked a bit further into 
the international element of Chatham House and it's and it's work working at the Africa program. We did we did some work on that, and I think I think the house fundamentally, with its past, was not necessarily created to facilitate discussions like we had um, with Melina or discussions like this. But now, as we as we move into the second century of this institute's existence, the you know the stakeholders are no longer people that are of a specific complexion, of a specific gender, and of a specific social class. We hope, and we, and we hope our work is, like I said prior, really inclusive of everyone and and anyone that wants to engage in it. So, it's the beginning of a of of a let's say a journey to make this institute more inclusive and that's what this group is about and this is what we're, the work that we're trying to do is about but our history can never be forgotten or erased in that journey one of the reasons why i feel it's even more of a priority for us moving forward is because we have a lot of good work to do before we can offset some of the more negative aspects yeah thank you just picking up on that point yusuf and also on something you mentioned leah about historical examination how how do you think that institutes like ours should begin that process of examination? I mean, obviously, we have done some internal work as well, which I'm sure some of you guys can talk to. But speaking on a more broader level, what are the kind of things that we should be looking at and looking for? And how do we engage with this process in a very meaningful way and in a way that's accessible too? The main thing I would say is, is that there are other organisations that have been going through this process that have done a brilliant job and we should be learning from them and not replicating work that's already been done. But I think the best testament you have to confronting a history that has so many pain points is demonstrating that we are not replicating similar mistakes and that the work that happens at Chatham House should and should increasingly look at discrimination, inequality and address some of the issues that we wrote about and we talked about at Chatham House but we didn't write about them or talk about them from the right perspective. So I think the best testament you you have is is changing how you work. The other thing I would say is is that in discussions about history there is a tendency to try and make things look better than they are and find, you know, loopholes And what we should be doing, and I hope that we are and moving towards that space, is being really honest and saying, okay, these are the terrible mistakes we made. This is how we plan to learn from them. And this is how we make sure that if we're in a discussion or a situation in the future, we know as an institute where our sort of ethics and morality stand on these topics. There's a lot we can do to examine the history of Chatham House and to use the way we've done things in the past to inform how we do things in the future and maybe do them differently. So in the library, we mostly provide access to the information we have. We have this massive archive, but unfortunately we don't really have the resources to look through everything at this time. And I think it's something that the Institute should prioritize, perhaps have more resources so we can actually go through our archives and present the information thematically or be able to provide the information right away for researchers who are looking at things. I know in the EDI working group, we've talked about decolonizing research and we want the library to be a part of that. We want to review our collections and do things like updating our keywords, the way we describe our items to make sure that they're modern, somewhat modern. There needs a bit of work there. Um, I actually listened to an event earlier today with Dr. Richard Benjamin, who's head of the International Slavery Museum here in Liverpool. And he was talking a lot about missing and disregarded histories and how they're tackling this problem, which I'd say they're doing really successfully, the museums in Liverpool. And we can learn a lot from institutions like this. I'm also thinking of the way the British Library uses its history and its collections to highlight issues and to drive conversations about social justice. 
And there's a lot of work we could do um, thinking about how the library could support all of these initiatives we have around uh, equity and diversifying and decolonizing. While it's the job of kind of everyone, regardless of their race, um, to kind of be a part of this and help lead these kind of discussions and help push the agenda of kind of tackling some of the more questionable aspects of um, an institute's past, I think part of it does start with looking around you and kind of seeing who is in the room and who actually has access to the information that you're providing. You've got to, one of the most actionable things you can do is kind of how many people are in senior positions at institutes like ours that are that are black, that are people of colour and, and identify as being so and actually want to kind of push that agenda. You need to look at who is in the room because no one will be as kind of I guess passionate about as someone that is affected by it and when you don't have any of those voices in the room it's very easy for these things to become dismissed especially because it's hard to kind of understand something if you haven't been through it not to say it's impossible but I think a lot of institutes really do need to invest into kind of how and who is having discussions and how they can make space or how they can actually platform people that do have the knowledge if they don't have the knowledge internally to kind of have and make these discussions and decisions. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And um, I think it leads on quite nicely to my next question, which is about this idea of allyship. And of course, we've probably all heard quite a lot about it over the past year. But Melina made the point really, really well in her speech that racial equality and reducing what she called, I think, the burden of race was a sort of sacred duty for all of us. But how, how do you guys interpret that? I mean, we're all part of the EDI working group at Chatham House and we're a fairly diverse bunch, I guess. But what do you guys see as your individual duty or role to support the cause of racial equality or indeed equ- equality in general? And what kind of things are you seeing your teammates or yourself do to kind of push that forward? So I think I'll firstly kind of approach it a little bit from my strand if you will. I'm co-chair for the disability strand. And for me, I think the reason why sort of the EDI working group is all together, even though we're working on different strands, we all recognize that all of these protected characteristics, they're intersectional. So, you know, there's a race and ethnicity gap, there's a gender gap, there's a disability gap, and all of these identities or rather all these characteristics, they, they intersect. Somebody who is disabled is much more likely to have uh, lower socioeconomic status, more likely to be out of work. And that figure, the figure which I do not remember at this time, um, gets even worse when you're black or from a BAME background. So I think that's sort of the point on intersectionality and where sort of I'm coming from in terms of supporting equity in general is I do not know the burden of some of these other characteristics, right? But I do know the burden of being disabled and it can be hard, right? So neurodiverse people or even sort of people, you know, my friends, like our lives are difficult at times. And I'm sure that that is similar for other people in this group and other people at Chatham House as well. I think that's such an important point and I, I in response to your question, Amber, and, and to Nina's brilliant point, I would say, I mean, one key thing is I think empathy is that realising that people's different experiences or backgrounds or how 
their lives have unfolded impacts how they experience things. The second thing I would say is I have a problem with performative allyship versus proactive allyship. And I think that what we really need to be talking about is proactive allyship. And and that means that if there is a comment made in any space that you're in about, oh, where are you from? Or if someone is misgendered or if there is an assumption made about someone's background, whatever that might be, I think that we need to get to a space where everyone and in whatever way they are most comfortable says, nope, that's not right. And you know what? That doesn't need to be aggressive and in someone's face. That can be pulling someone aside and saying, hey, I've read this really great book. I think you might need to read this. Um, so I would say being proactive in those spaces and realizing that that is everyone's responsibility. And actually, I would say that it is more the responsibility of people who have not had to, you know, have not had those questions aimed at them. I see our role as some of some of the role some of our role in this work is about education, but this is where allyship is really important because it, the burden shouldn't be on the people from the minoritized groups to do all of the education because it's hard enough being in a minoritized group, in particular if people are dismissing your issues, uh, they don't believe what you're actually saying to them. So this is where allies are really important that they can do the educating and the support, the listening and the learning, and as Leah said, uh, correcting people as well. I think that's incredibly important for allies to do and to visibly show support as much as possible and to take on some of that burden. Yeah, whoops, sorry for getting a little (laughs) heavy there. You know, emotional regulation is not necessarily my forte, but basically uh, to sort of get back on a sort of additional positive note, I think my point really was that our experiences intersect. And so there's a real sort of possibility for us to amplify each other's work. We all have different focuses, but we all know that our work intersects in that sense. And I truly believe that this is sort of the start of something. And we definitely in you know years time, we won't be the people to take this forward. But hopefully we'll have started a structure, we've built a foundation for other people and for for generally the opportunity for Chatham House to transform the way it does things. I also want to address your point, Amrit, specifically about racism and anti-racism at work. I'm As the EDI chair, I'm a white woman. So I think that's really important to acknowledge. I think in so many conversations about EDI, what happens is that the conversation is about the inclusion and awareness of people of colour, the awareness of racism. And what happens is that quite often it's white women from middle class backgrounds who end up doing better because of the measures that are imposed. So I think that's a really important thing to acknowledge. What I would say specifically on the point in relation to Chatham House is that I think we have a real duty as anyone who is in a room who is white to say, why is it that the majority of the people in this space are white? And to not make it the duty of people of colour to, to ask that question again and again. Because I think that is what ends up happening and and that is something that we really need to address. And when an event or a department or a conference, when you walk into those spaces and you realise what the lack of representation, it is the duty, your duty to call that out and to make sure that not only is it something that people address in the future, but, and I think this was a point 
that we spoke about after the Black Lives Matter event is that people should be uncomfortable about that. You should make people uncomfortable. And actually being uncomfortable is how you learn and you improve. And I think as an organization and way beyond, we need to get much more comfortable with being uncomfortable because that is how you properly address these issues where people call you out and where people say you haven't done this and you should be doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And like we've, Leah, as I'm sure you'll know, we have a really good manners policy as well, which we try to enforce as much as possible that you um, and one of our ex-colleagues led on. Um, But it's really true that representation is probably one of the first barriers to equality and real meaningful change. So it's one of the first areas that we should look at when we're trying to embed these big institution-wide and systemic changes um, in the ways we work. I think last year, you know, it was incredible to see the huge amounts of active forms of support quote unquote, that we that we saw, whether it be the, the Twitter posts and the statements and the blacking out of certain social media icons amongst other things, right? But I think active solidarity or proactive solidarity, as I think Leah correctly described it, is an allyship, is about really recognizing and and, and not centering yourself the, in the situation itself or centering yourself in the, in the challenges that other people are facing. It's about recognizing what those challenges are, what those obstacles are, and you know, providing a platform, amplifying the voices of the people who have the lived experience in challenging those obstacles, right, and removing those obstacles, and being able to ensure that the, whether it be the institution that we're referring to now, Sham House, but even within our own like social backgrounds, right, and social social structures, whether it be, you know, we we're very comfortable and willing to have the discussion in race. Maybe at work because it doesn't necessarily feel, even though it's a challenge, still we we are still willing to maybe touch upon it because it's important and it and it, and it requires some and there is a level of social capital to be gained in it in the current society that we live in. But are we willing to have the same conversations, you know, amongst our friendship circles? Are we willing to have the same conversations amongst our family? Are we willing to have the same conversations, you know, when the when the power dynamics are completely different? And I think that it's that level of active solidarity, that level of allyship. That for me, that's what allyship is. For me, allyship isn't isn't necessarily just you know the outward-facing actions that may allow you to accrue some level of uh, political and social capital, but the ones that require actual self-examination and, and, and actually recognising where you yourself also make the same mistakes or may, you know, perpetrate the same unfortunate perceptions that exist around around the minorities that we were discussing. Yeah, and I think really kind of, like, you have touched on a really good point, which is about the power dynamics. Melina said that it's not when she says black lives matter she means all black lives and i think that's a really important thing not just when you're talking about black lives and race ethnicity but when you're talking about kind of any kind of uh, marginalized group whether it's disability whether it's lgbtq i think what is really important is those kind of power dynamics because they are different depending on how on the marginalization you face and i think i can't do my work if i don't support say binny's work with LGBTQ+. I can't do my work if I don't support um, Amit's work with um, women. And again, Amit can't do her work if she is not supporting my work in terms of what I do with race and ethnicity because it is so intersectional and people will be get left out. And again, I'm, I may be black, but again, I'm, I still identify as a man. So there's gaps, not only my knowledge, but also my experience. And I'm going to leave people out, even though I'm representing race and ethnicity, I'm still going to leave people out if I don't have conversations with people that are also trying to push forward agendas regarding gender, kind of disabilities, 
and stuff like that. So I think the power dynamics and how we can kind of lend our support to other people and other marginalised groups and kind of work together is really, really important. So I think that's a really like interesting and like important point that you've kind of highlighted that needs to be kind of understood at all levels so just because you don't identify or you don't kind of directly relate to something you can use that those power shots you can use those power dynamics you can kind of really use to, to be a good ally you can kind of really use the kind of social currency that has been given to you whether fairly or not to uplift other people Picking up on your point about social currency and capitalising on it, we've all been in the EDI working group for over a year now, but what has been the thing that you've been most proud of achieving to advance the cause of equality, diversity and inclusion? I think there's two things. I think the first is that we are having this conversation internally and that might seem sort of really small, but the fact that we are actually talking about this and that people come for advice and say, oh, I don't know how to talk about this or I don't know how to write about this, can you help me? Um this person has flagged a problem to me, I would like to think of EDI in addressing it. That's the first thing. And the second, I think, is, and I'll let Jay talk about this more, is that we currently have this amazing Black History Month photo exhibition. And to see a place like Chatham House, where so much history happened, reflect and and discuss and, and create space for the experiences of black British people in London over the past 40 years has been really a memorable point for me. I completely agree with everything Leah said. I think the best thing is just our existence as a working group and kind of us representing different kind of strands um, regarding kind of equality, diversity and inclusion. I think it's, a, it's kind of allowed us just by existing to kind of shed light on what Chatham House doesn't know because Chatham House is known for knowing a lot and I think just our existence has shown that we don't know a lot about certain certain things and it's kind of exposed that currently we are doing an exhibition um, at Chatham House in our Neil Malcolm room celebrating the photography of um, Neil Kenlock he was a legacy photographer um, he was actually the first person to be granted a license to cater for the black community in the UK and his photography really documented the hopes aspirations and struggles of people from the Windrush generation. If you'd like to see the exhibition, you can come to Chatham House and see it if you are a member. If not, you can email us at membership at chathamhouse.org and we can arrange time for you to come see it. Putting together that exhibition and putting together that event, we kind of really noticed gaps in the kind of knowledge pool that is Chatham House. And I think while it is thorough, I think Chatham House was around in the 60s and 70s, right? But you won't see any of those work, any of those people in the Chatham House canon. You won't see any any of it at all. And I think to be able to kind of highlight that and spotlight that shows that we don't want to be somewhere that this whole movement happened. There's a whole exhibition on it right in our in one of our biggest rooms in the house. But if you look internally at Chatham House, there's no documentation of that. According to Chatham House canon, that didn't happen. And I think while we do look at um, other countries, we look at what happened in South Africa. And Chatham House is, Chatham, it's not to say Chatham House hasn't done anything because the Africa programme has done a lot and they were one of the first of their kind. And I think they did, they invited Nelson Mandela. It was the first time he ever spoke outside of Africa. He spoke at Chatham House. So Chatham House has always kind of supported the broader black diaspora, but when it's close to home, it has kind of not been present. And I think it's been amazing to put the exhibition together because I think like, it's really highlighted that we don't want to be left behind as a leading political think tank. We need to make sure that we are leading in an array of subjects, not just the traditional ones we were built on. And like Yusuf said initially, it was created kind of what it was created by white men, and 
There was even a woman who was key to kind of the construction of Chatham House initially that we're only just now spotlighting. So I think stuff like the exhibition, stuff like the work we're doing with EDI has all kind of been, in general, just a highlight because it's really shed a light on the kind of aspects that we weren't too knowledgeable on before. The other thing I would say, which I should have said first, is that probably more than any of the other things I've spoken about is I think... It's amazing that we have this awesome group of people together working on this topic and you don't know who we are, but we're from across the organisation. We work on very, very different things and to work together towards this core mission and, you know, to have all of these pieces of, to have all of these things that we've always found important and try to bring into our work, but now have a space to do that centrally and to bring other colleagues with us is probably the best one. And that's all because of the amazing five people in this room well three people in this room two virtually in this room so I think what I found most positive was just kind of staff appetite to sort of start working on um, disability issues so I think in May we did an event with um, sign language translation as well as live captioning Um, Since then, I know that that has been something that people are thinking about, thinking about live captioning, thinking about how to make events more inclusive. Shout out to the digital team. They're doing an accessibility audit of our digital um, presence. Um, And I know that, you know, within the facilities area, Chatham House is an old building, which makes it difficult to transform, difficult to change because of its protected status. But it's encouraging to see people being interested in looking at what is possible and what might be possible um, in the coming years as well. And I'm also connecting that to sort of hybrid events coming up and us sort of looking, taking a lens at sort of what type of events we're doing and how. So I think that would be some of my highlights. And do check out um, seminars that Prospect put on, um, as well as some of the things that are coming up in our EDI events calendar that will be posted very soon. Um, I can echo what the others have said, that perhaps one of the most amazing things about this group is that it actually exists. And it, it's well overdue, but thinking about Chatham House, it's it's brilliant that we're actually getting somewhere with this, that we have an EDI working group, that we're given time to work on it. But what we've also noticed, there's a lot to be done, but the work itself is, sometimes it might feel a little bit overwhelming, but it's been great working with these amazing people. And I think we are getting somewhere and I think some of the things we're going to do like setting up a staff network for LGBT staff is going to be really really important and appreciated and we can use that to continue the work further it's so far been uh, sometimes frustrating but really really satisfying experience and Binny I know you've along with the union you've put on some really good seminars as well about a, how we be a good ally, um, and also how we talk about LGBTIQ plus issues within the workspace too. So I think we could all agree that those have been very useful to us and also very important for us all to attend. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. And for those of you in the video studio, I'm so sorry that it's been freezing. (laughs) But thank you guys again. And yeah, thank you all for all of the hard work you've done in the past year as well. Thank you for having us. Thank Thank you. you. As Melina, Bini, Yusuf, Leah, Nina and Jay alluded to, this is a process and it doesn't just end with us setting up this working group or end as Black History Month comes to a close in the UK. 
all of us here at Chatham House are continuing to learn and to work towards this important goal. As Jay mentioned, if you'd like to see the Neil Kenlock exhibition, please do get in touch with us. It's running until the 2nd of November. Please do leave us a comment or a like on whatever podcast app you're using. It just makes it easier for others to find us. And before I leave you all in peace, just a quick note to keep an eye out for us over the next few weeks as COP26 gets underway. Between undercurrents and the climate briefing, which Ben hosts with our colleague Anna Aubrey from the Environment and Society programme, our plan is to flood your Chatham House podcast feeds with COP26 insights. Anna and Ben will have all the gossip, the updates and analysis from Glasgow, so definitely watch this space. Thank you for listening.